Why do you think people are going to enjoy this episode? This episode highlights what makes Socialite Crime Club different. I'm going to tell you a story about a brutal murder, but it's a story that's already been covered. A handful of TV shows, a couple podcasts, and just about every news agency in the country's covered it. Today, I'm going to tell you the real story, one that can only be told by the detectives who worked the case, and they refer to it as Hammerside. Welcome to Socialite Crime Club. watching today we do discuss a lot of graphic content Um, you'll actually get to see photos from the crime scene of this case and they're pretty bloody if you're okay looking at blood we encourage you to join us on youtube to see these photos otherwise view at your discretion perfectly put we're going to go to 2009 for this case Um, And a little bit of background, a little history here. In 2009, I was a sergeant over our violent crimes unit, uh, which basically encompasses homicides. So in our jurisdiction, any homicide that occurred, I would get the call and I would be in charge of coordinating and running that investigation. This is a story that I supervised as a homicide sergeant. So let's back up to the 911 call because it, it's kind of interesting how this thing starts. On January 14th, 2009, about 2.45 in the morning, uh, dispatch is going to receive a 911 call from a female caller. Um, she doesn't identify herself. She's just kind of babbling, like she's really chaotic. Um, they can't understand anything she's saying with one exception, help. So at some point she gets out the word help. But then the phone disconnects and it looks like the caller hung up. So dispatch immediately calls back and the same female answers. And again, she's just kind of all over the place, not really making sense, very unintelligible conversation. She hangs up again. The third time she calls 911 back, the the original person who called, and she starts the conversation this time with, are they coming? Referring to the patrol officers. And the dispatcher tells, yes, patrol officers are on their way. Are you okay, ma'am? Are you safe? What's going on? And she says, He's, he was trying to strangle me. He was strangling me. Like she's really, really amped up. Okay. Um, dispatcher asks, does he have any weapons? To which she responds, not anymore. Oh. Which is, it really stands out in the 911 call. Okay. And then the dispatcher followed up. Well, what kind of weapon did he have? And she tells him, a hammer. So at that point, she hangs up again. Um, the Patrol officers roll in very quickly after that. So I want to paint this picture a little bit, though. Very chaotic scene. The The police officers have no idea what they're going into. Uh, something about strangling or he was strangling me. He had a hammer. Mm-hmm. There's this really weird, I guess, information that's coming in that's not really piecing together. So as they roll up, they see a male and a female in the front of the house. So so they're assuming the guy with her is also the suspect that she's calling about. Exactly. So they're a little bit worked up about, okay, let's make contact with these people immediately. Um, maybe this, these are our involved parties. Uh, the male subject, though, that's in the front yard is not the person she was referring to, which they clear up very quickly. Um, it's a guy by the name of Stanley. Okay. And Stanley's just a roommate that apparently wasn't involved with the assault initially, they thought. And then there's an, a female and her name is Marissa. We'll get more into these two characters here in just a little bit. They put them both in police cars so that they can search the house to find out because apparently there's still people in the house. Prior to putting them in the police cars, they pat them down really quick just to make sure they don't have weapons. And sure. this is why you do this is Stanley has a 22 pistol in his front pocket. Oh, So okay. they remove the pistol and they kind of ask him like, hey, what's up with the gun? And he immediately says, it's Marissa's. Her boss gave it to her. Usually when you show up on scene and like nobody's actually guilty of anything, somebody immediately tells you that they have a weapon when you go to pat them down. Yeah. And this is a very chaotic scene. Like Marissa's still not making sense of anything. She's just kind of chaotic, just rambling. And Stanley, after he says, 
it's Marissa's, he makes a comment that he had to do it to protect Marissa, that he's the one that was swinging the hammer. He's very odd in the way he explains it, but basically it's me. I'm the one that you're, you guys are looking for here. So he's admitting guilt. He's admitting guilt right okay. off the bat. But then he says, I want my attorney. <laughs> I'm not going to answer any other questions. So he sets it up like, hey, I'm your guy, but don't talk to me. Um, <laughs> and this is before detectives arrive. He tells patrol this. Correct. It, okay. Like literally at first contact. So now that they have both of them in the back of police cars, they're also going through the house trying to see, okay, well, what's in the house? What are we dealing with here? They find three children, uh, two younger ones, probably I'm just going to guesstimate between four and let's say eight. And then an older one who's about 12 or 13. The okay. older one is awake in her room. Uh, the younger ones are asleep in the master bedroom. They find an adult male um, and he is missing a giant chunk of his head, literally like softball size uh, on his right side of his head is just gone. It's, it's caved in. Are they able to speak to him or? He's not they... responsive. He is alive. He is breathing. Um, they immediately call for paramedics who are just staged right down the road with calls like this. You know, paramedics will stage and wait for the scene to be safe. Mm-hmm. So once they determine, okay, there's nobody else here. The scene is safe. They bring paramedics in and this is a, just literally grab him and go um, because he's in such bad shape. Uh, it, it really is surprising everybody. He's not. They dead. just have to do anything to sustain life at that point. Right. As they're dealing with him, they end up identifying him, the, the police officers on scene, as Dale Harrell. And Dale is apparently Marissa's husband. So Dale and Marissa are married. Stanley's just a roommate who lives in the house. And we don't know. You don't know much about him yet. What is of particular interest to the police officers is next to Dale, and he's kind of sitting on the floor, leaning up against a nightstand, and then the other part of his body is leaning up against the bed. So where the bed and the nightstand come together, he's kind of in that corner sitting on the floor, his head slumped over. Right, just kind of nudged in between them. Yeah, and there's a desk against the wall next to the nightstand, and on that desk is a hammer. And it looks like somebody literally just dunked the hammer in like a bucket of blood and then just sat it there like it is saturated um, Hmm. with blood. So let's render aid. Let's figure out what's going on here. So we've got a couple different things happening with different people. And what's going to happen next is Dale is immediately taken to emergency room. They rush him into surgery trying to save his life. Marissa, they start to talk to her very briefly at the scene, and she is claiming that she was being strangled by Dale, that he was attacking her. At which point Stanley came in with a hammer and started hitting Dale to get her to save her, to get Dale off of her. Okay. And she mentions, he saved my life. Okay. Did she say, like, where she was when he was strangling her? Was she She was in bed. Standing up. Okay. So she's saying that she's in bed. And we don't get a lot of details because, again, everything's still fragmented. They're just trying to manage the scene. Okay. But she is reporting basically a domestic violence incident where her husband is choking her, trying to strangle her. Basically, she is giving a very brief synopsis that her husband, Dale, was on top of her while she was lying in bed. She woke up to this. He's strangling her. She is about to go unconscious from being strangled when Stanley rushes in, saves the day, and starts hitting Dale with a hammer to get Dale off of her. Okay. Um, And we don't get much more at that point. But for the investigation, we have a female who's claiming she was a victim of a domestic violence incident with her husband. Mm -hmm. We're going to transport her to the hospital for evaluation as well. So she goes to a different emergency room. Then we have Stanley. Um, He's invoked his rights. So we are not going to question him any further. But he has a little bit of blood on his shirt. He's got some on his pants. Um, there's some evidence that we're going to collect there. So Stanley is taken to the police department as the primary suspect at this point. And as we kind of figure out what's going on with this case, we're also going to seize his clothes and just try to preserve that. So when I get to the police department that morning, I didn't go to the scene. I, by the time I get up and actually get there, they've already got everybody transported. What did the blood evidence look like on him? We don't know yet. Well, he's covered in blood. He's naked. By the way. Oh, he's not even wearing clothes. He's completely naked. But there's so, so much blood. He's slumped up against the the dresser naked. Yes. Bloody. Okay. Covered in blood. Like we'll get to it, but crazy blood everywhere. Okay. So but when I arrive at the police department to start the investigation part of this, 
I've got a detective who's already headed to the hospital where Marissa is to interview Marissa, document what's happening there. I've got a detective who's with Stanley at the police department, send another detective to the hospital where Dale's at to get whatever updates we can get, some pictures, try to document whatever we can evidence-wise. And then kind of to your point, like, well, what does the scene look like? I've got another detective that I'm now assigned to write the search warrant. For us to go in and actually start collecting evidence, the suspect lives there most likely, we need a search warrant. So we can't do anything in there. And it's going to take several hours to get the search warrant. So we're going to be kind of running blind a little bit on what the scene, really being able to dig into what the scene is going to tell us. Okay. Um, so as we start this, I am <laughs> walking in and when I get there, I'm told that Stanley's in one of our interview rooms. So just going to go in there and say hello to Stanley, okay. introduce myself, kind of let him know what's going on. Okay. And as I get in there and I open the door, he's just kind of standing there. And, and uh, this is a picture of Stanley. This is a picture of Stanley. He has okay. a shirt on. And I actually have a, a better picture of his shirt. Let me, uh, there you go. I was wondering, I thought that looked like a dwarf from Snow White and it is Grumpy Dwarf. Yeah, it's Grumpy it's Dwarf. on his shirt. And, and just to make sure, you know, I want to make sure we're keeping everybody in tune of what's happening here. I'm arriving to the police department where we have a suspect in custody, from what I've been told, who used a hammer to potentially kill somebody who was strangling his wife. And when I meet this person who was swinging the hammer for the first time, he's standing in our interview room with a T-shirt on that says, I'm right, you're wrong. Any questions? And with then it grumpy has, dwarf pointing a pickaxe from the t-shirt right oh like okay and you have to kind of get it's a little aggressive so go back one image um his shirt looks is that blood on his shirt so this is a really old shirt it there is blood on his shirt but there's also just like dirt and like, like stains? grime and stains. Like and then spaghetti sauce? His mom's spaghetti sauce. Like it literally looks like there's just like drippings of something on his shirt. Yeah, and you're going to see as we go through and I start explaining more about Stanley. Stanley probably isn't the best kept guy that you, you'll you ever come across. So Yeah, he it, doesn't appear yeah, so. Yeah, there's the majority of what you're seeing on that shirt is not blood. Now, there are some blood droplets and some blood smears that we'll talk about here in a little mm -hmm. bit on his clothing. Um, but it was just ironic. And it it should have told me at that moment just how crazy this case was going to get, where I'm seeing the guy accused of the do hammer you, side wearing a shirt. Do you very, happen to know if he changed, if he had time to change at all? No. he. This is what he was wearing when, well, I mean, when I don't Dale know. When Dale was bludgeoned. I can't. I don't know when Dale was bludgeoned compared to when the 911 call. So I can't sure. say that for sure. This is what he was wearing when, when police arrived. officers arrived. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, all right. So we just kind of keep him there. We're going to seize his clothes. <laughs> We're going to write the search warrant. Um, and I just want everybody who listens to this or if they watch, because there is a lot of stuff on the internet about this case. If you're ever watching and you're like, why isn't the detective asking this? Or why isn't the detective asking that? Mm -hmm. I kind of get frustrated in how some of these shows present the chronological order of how this stuff happens. This first interview that we're going to get with Marissa is at the hospital. The detective has not been to the scene. The detective hasn't seen any of the evidence at the scene. Overall, we don't know what's in the scene. We have very little information. So he, he just woke up. It's 3.30 in the morning. He's trying to get his bearings on life. And this is the, the first the interview. The suspects on scene don't even know what's happening. They're still trying to formulate their lies. Correct. Exactly. And in, in this particular case, Marissa's all over the place. Like, she's babbling. She's just a complete mess trying to explain anything. So it's very difficult to get any information out of her. So when people watch this and they're like, well, I just don't understand why the detective didn't ask that. Well, it's so early in the investigation, we didn't know. So just kind of be patient as we, we go through this. So when he arrives there and he starts to talk to Marissa to find out what happened, Marissa's going to explain that she wants a divorce from Dale. And about a week ago, she told Dale that she's gonna file for a divorce. And they've been fighting off and on throughout the week about this divorce. Dale doesn't want a divorce. Okay. Well, on this particular evening, they were fighting again. And then she drops this little hint, and it's really interesting how she does this, that during their argument that night, Dale picks up a hammer. And he has a hammer in his hand for a period of time. And the detective, like, keys in on this and says, well, did he threaten you with it? And she doesn't answer. She just starts talking about 
their, their argument. And he says, well, at any time did you feel threatened by the hammer? She doesn't answer again, and she just keeps talking about this divorce and the argument. And then she says, well, then he just set it down. So was the hammer just out and about in the kitchen or? She's going to say that she was hanging pictures or a picture in their master bedroom earlier in the day. And that's why the hammer was out. Apparently she left. Okay. It there. That's where he got it. And, but I'm she's, thinking he just walks around all day with a hammer in well, his belt or but something. But that's kind of how she starts to frame it is that Dale just has this hammer and then it's just sitting there. But she's kind of <laughs> laying the foundation that there's this hammer in the room. Okay. Then she says they went to bed they both fall asleep. And a couple hours later, she wakes up with Dale on top of her, and he's trying to choke her and strangle her, like both hands around her neck, strangling her. Okay. And he yells out to her, you bitch. And that's like one of the last things she remembers because she actually starts to lose consciousness, like she's blacking out. Okay. When she comes back to, she sees Stanley standing over them. He's, Dale is still on top of her in the bed, and Stanley is just beating Dale with this hammer. And she actually sees or says, I see the hammer going in Dale's head, like repeatedly. I would think then that there would be more blood on Stanley. If that if his shirt wasn't just spaghetti stains, like I would think that, that those would be blood stains, maybe. And Marissa, like the spidey sense of this detective is going off because she's underneath him. So blood should be dripping down on her. Oh yeah. Just everywhere. And there should be like voids on the bed of, of blood. Yeah, and we don't know about the bed yet. Okay. But yeah, like there should be. But we be should a, expect to see that. There should be a lot of blood uh, okay. based on the injuries and what we're seeing here. So, what gets really interesting with this is at that point, Dale collapses on top of her and she pushes him off the bed. And then she jumps out of the bed and runs down the hallway and allegedly calls 911. And she says, Oh, thank goodness I got away. Yes. Okay. And Stanley saved me. And she quotes something along the lines of, it isn't good how this happened, but he did the right thing, referring to Stanley. And Mm -hmm. then she says it again. So this is the second time she said, he saved my life. So he's kind of making it look like he's the hero. Stanley's the hero here. Um, She then starts to get into this very long history of domestic violence that Dale has been abusive throughout their entire relationship. Uh, There's all kinds of domestic violence in their past. And when the detective pushes a little bit, well, like what kind, like physical? And she said, well, yes, not too long ago, he fractured my skull. Hmm. To which the detective said, well, did you report it? And she says, well, I reported it to the doctor. But she indicates that she went and saw a doctor and actually, so there should be some medical records. I would assume she'd be going to the emergency room. You would think for a fractured skull. So it's too early for us to figure out like, okay, is there any legitimacy to this? But she is painting this very grandiose picture that there's a lot of domestic violence and it should be very well done. And physical violence. Physical, like yes, abs- absolutely. Um, at which point the detective says, well, we found a gun on Stanley and he said it was yours. And she says, oh yeah, yes, that is my gun. My boss gave it to me. Well, who, who's your boss? Alan Flores. So that's a new character in this, this event. And Do we know what she does? Where does she work? She explains that Alan has a real estate company and she's a secretary for him. Okay. But apparently she's been telling Alan about all the issues she has with Dale. Alan feels so worried or is so concerned about her well-being. Alan has given her a gun for protection because of the Dale issue. What a great employer. Apparently he's a really nice boss. Okay. Um, Now, Hmm. she doesn't want to keep it in her room though. Because what if Dale found it? Right. So she gave it to Stanley to hold, and that's why Stanley has it. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfectly normal. I have a ton of audio clips for this case, but she babbles so much, and it's hard to hear. It's just annoying. Like, when I listen to it, I'm just like, I'm so done with it already. Nothing she says is making sense. Yeah, but she says one thing, and I'm going to try to work it in so people can hear it. So it's a little bit hard to hear, so we'll put some captions in there. But at at one point, the detective says, okay, so your boss, Alan, he knows about what's going on with you and Dale then. And she says, he knows all about Dale and all of Dale's bullshit. And then she kind of laughs at the end. Huh. So I'm going to put that clip in. And when you hear it, it's hard to hear, but that's what she's saying. Okay. What's your boss's name? Alan. Alan. 
The next thing I need is an update on Dale. Like, is he dead? Is he alive? Because that's going to impact the charging. How's he doing? Like, what do the injuries look like? So I'm speaking to the detective who's there. Uh, He's describing Dale has a giant void on the right side of his skull, uh, just above his ear, like right above the temple area here. Um, And it's roughly softball size. Um, It is not looking good. He has major brain injury. Like, he's in bad shape. Okay. Um, So they've rushed him into surgery. We're not going to know anything for several hours until he comes out of surgery. Um, Completely unresponsive. So Dale has not made any statements to any first responders, paramedics, hospital staff. Like, he's, he's out. So we're never going to hear from Dale what he believes happened. Right. Okay, we're talking about a lot of people. Let's do a little breakdown here really quick. Dale Harrell is a victim of a head injury. We don't know if he's a suspect or a victim yet, but he's the victim of a head injury all the same. He's 34 years old, and uh, like I said, he's got catastrophic damage to the side of his head. Marissa DeVault is his wife. She's okay. 31. So Marissa and Dale are married. Different last names. She never, yeah, I was going to say, she, doesn't, she never took his last name, apparently. Yeah, that happens a lot, though, sometimes in relationships. In these modern relationships. Yeah, yes. in these modern relationships. I don't know if you know, but I recently was married not too long ago. Uh-huh. And my wife kept her maiden name for I don't know how many years. It's because it's so tedious to change yeah. all of your credit so, cards, so all of tedious your passport to, to accept that marriage. It's <laughs> yeah. not tedious to accept it. <laughs> I understand. It's uh, tedious so. to manage it. <laughs> <laughs> so different last names, but they'd been married for 10 years. They got married in 1999. Actually, it goes back a little further than that. They're both from a very small town in Arizona. They went to high school together. They dated a little bit in high school, and then they kind of separated. Uh, Marissa got pregnant towards the end of high school and actually has her daughter when she's very young. Uh, Dale's kind of doing her thing or his thing. Marissa's doing her thing. Ultimately, they kind of meet back up in the late 90s, and then they end up getting married in 1999. Um, So they've got a little bit of history there. Stanley, this is a really interesting story. And if you're like, this doesn't make any sense, kudos to you for paying attention. Um, Stanley and Marissa were taking night classes, like college night courses together. Mm -hmm. And they just met in a class and they became really good friends. And apparently Stanley needed a place to live. Marissa had an extra bedroom. So she told him, hey, if you want to come live with me, you can. Just help me take care of my kids and maybe clean up around the house. And That's I, weird. You can live rent-free. Stanley's also 31, so Stanley and Marissa are the same age. Um, and it is weird. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't work. Just what does he do school. all day? He plays a lot of video games. Because um, clearly he's not doing his laundry. No, no, not based on that shirt. Um, The other thing that's really difficult with Stanley, and he tells law enforcement this right from the get-go, years ago he was in a motorcycle accident, and he has some type of traumatic brain injury. Okay. And he can't remember anything ever. Yeah, he's taking college courses. Apparently he's got a good cheat sheet or something, because his memory is like you tell him something, five minutes later it's gone. He is straight up Dory from, from Finding Nemo. So just keep swimming. Yeah, we don't know much about Stanley. And anytime you ask Stanley to explain something about Stanley, he forgets. How convenient. Yes. So Stanley's going to be kind of something that's a moving target throughout this entire investigation. And then we have Alan Flores. And Alan Flores, all we know at this point is Marissa's boss. He does real estate and Marissa's his secretary. She's been working for him for a couple of years, supposedly. Um, We're finally going to get the search warrant. So we have these interviews going with Marissa. Stanley's being processed at this point um, for potential aggravated assault, if not homicide. We're seizing his clothes, and we finally get the search warrant. So we're going to go out to the house, and I've got to kind of like hit this the pause button. The house they live in that you have up? Yeah, so here's a picture of it here. It's cute. It's a nice house. Um, it is in a very upscale, uh, very uh, affluent Gilbert, Arizona neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, today, the lawn is beautiful. This is 2009, but I would say today that house is probably what 1.5, maybe probably. more, because well, it's got property. For the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got about an acre and a half. Um, yeah, the grass. I'm kind of, I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little jelly on the grass there. That's yeah. nice. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, uh, do they have horses? Because that looks like horse. Property. They do have horses. It's interesting you asked me that. Hmm. I was gonna leave this out because it gets so convoluted. Okay. They have horses. 
they're not their horses they're somebody else's horses and we'll like come back to them horses maybe or something kind of but not really it's okay. weird but everything these people do is weird um all right but it's a nice house uh you would think as a young 30 something year old couple they appear to be doing pretty well to mm -hmm. the point that they even have an extra room where they're allowing this guy to live there rent free the kids rooms the house was a little messy for my taste um how so like dishes out like the dinner oh. was still there from the night before Ew. like just like clothes out like you could see somebody did some laundry and then they just left the hamper oh no uh, no yeah no i know that doesn't you have fly to fold right away that doesn't fold, fold that doesn't work in your house away right away yeah that doesn't work in my house <laughs> maybe it's because i've been very well trained at this point that that's unacceptable <laughs> if mommy comes home i'm in trouble um yeah. your dishes go in the dishwasher immediately yeah so it was a little bit messy and their bedroom was messy like there's just stuff out it just was very untidy yeah untidy like nothing like oh we need to call child protective services or anything but sure it, it was they're a not little, hoarders they're yeah, just not no, very clean people. just not very clean uh stanley's room <laughs> like his last four dinners were still out and um, on his shirt and on his shirt as soon as i walk into the bedroom like this is a game-changing moment um so a little bit of history again on background wise i was really into blood spatter not splatter but spatter, spatter is the actual technical term mm -hmm. um I had taken a bunch of courses. I had done a bunch of scenes to recreate it. At this point, actually, I had testified as a blood spatter expert. Um, and I was just really, really into blood spatter because you can tell what happened. There's a whole story that a crime scene tells when there's blood everywhere. Yeah. It, and, and it can. doesn't have to be everywhere. Just a few droplets a can tell a very, very big story. Yes, you cannot control blood when it's in flight and when it's smearing and doing all kinds of crazy things that blood does. And if you know what you're looking at, just to your point, it immediately tells a story. So when I walk in the room and I see all of this blood, and it's one of the bloodier scenes I'd worked in a long time, and I was thinking, oh man, we're gonna we, we're gonna see exactly what happened. Within 10 minutes, I knew Marissa was full of shit. Um, and we'll get into that here in just a little bit. But for our audience, there's a couple of terms that we're going to talk about. Um, there's blood transfer. And blood transfer is very, very important because it's very different than other types of blood stains. Blood transfer is I have blood on my hand and maybe I go to hug you and I touch the back, your it back. Just transfers and to it transfers to something or someone else. Exactly. Stanley has blood transfer on the back of his jacket like somebody maybe hugged him who had blood on their hands because they were very thankful for having their lives saved he saved her life um, so that's transfer there's also what we call blood in flight and blood can be in flight for a number of reasons but the idea is for some reason blood got thrown up in the air and it's doing things there's what we call high velocity high velocity is what you would see from a gunshot for example like you get shot in the arm and the blood comes out the side it's traveling very fast high velocity it does certain things when it impacts sure. and then there's low or medium velocity we have a lot of low and medium velocity uh, in this room and the best way to explain that is I'm dating myself because I tried to tell you about this the other day and you're like, who is that? So now mm -hmm. you made me feel really old. Yeah. Um, there used to be a stand-up comedian by the name of Gallagher. And okay. Gallagher's like his big thing is he would do stand-up comedy, but he would bring out like large fruits and vegetables, like a big like watermelon. Pumpkins. Pumpkin. And he would smash it with like a giant sledgehammer, like right on the front of the stage and it hit the whole crowd. Like when uh -huh. you went to a Gallagher show, you actually brought like a plastic and puncher. And you thought this was funny. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> Don't judge me. Yeah, it was funny. Um, okay. <laughs> but that's a really good way to explain medium and low velocity is if I smash something like that and you see all that fluid go out, that's uh -huh. low and medium velocity. In blood spatter school, one way that we recreate this would be to take a sponge soak it in like cow blood and then smash the sponge with a hammer smash right. the bun the sponge with a bat like different mm -hmm. things and you can see the patterns How that it, it creates right and then when that it spreads when that blood deposits on walls you'll actually see the drops a perfectly round drop is it hit the wall at 90 degrees perfectly straight and as that blood hits at different angles, it will have little tails. It'll have little tails. Mm -hmm. You you sound like you've been it's to blood like spatter I've been school. To blood spatter school, yeah. And then the last one we're going to talk about really quick is cast off. 
Um, cast off is when I have blood on my hand. I have blood on a hammer and I go to swing the hammer, that centrifugal force on the hammer as I swing it, blood droplets are coming out and they're getting deposited on the walls, the ceilings, maybe behind me. As I bring the hammer down behind me to start swinging it forward and I make that stop motion, a bunch of blood comes off and maybe hits my back. And then as I swing it forward again, I'm making this new line. So with cast off, we can actually see actual swings that were taken. Standing at the side of the bed that morning after we obtained the search warrant and looking at this blood, at least 12 swings. I could count immediately like, oh my God, there's blood. Every, it went all the way up the wall, across the entire ceiling, that is down crazy. the back wall, into the bathroom. Like there was blood Just everywhere. over and over again. Oh. And then that's that's like bicycle marks almost almost yeah like little bicycle trails 100 percent like little tire marks and then that gallagher thing i was explaining with the the pumpkin Uh imagine there being a pumpkin on the pillow and like all the pumpkin season pumpkin guts are just smeared all over the wall okay it was it was obvious that dale was laying in the bed he wasn't on top of anybody he was laying down most likely asleep on his left side with his right side up Mm -hmm when he was beat with a hammer. Well, it's interesting you're saying that because most men who are victims of uh, intimate partner violence, which is also known as IPV, will be attacked when they're they're at their most vulnerable, typically when they're asleep um, by a, if it's, they're attacked like this, it's typically by a female because the female doesn't have to worry about the being overpowered by strength. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, what I was seeing there matches what you just described, 100%. And I've got a picture here. We're going to talk about the first. I've only put two in. Is that just blood coagulation there on the, on the carpet? Yeah, some blood staining, blood coagulation. And you can almost see where his legs were. If you look kind of where the nightstand is and then where mm-hmm. the, it's really coagulated there, you can almost see a V mark between that coagulation and the bed. Yeah. His butt was right at the base of that nightstand. Oh, I see that. And yeah, then the yeah. legs on either side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he's kind of leaning up against the nightstand. And if you zoom in, and I'm sure there's some people who figure out how to do this on YouTube, uh, that nightstand is just covered in blood. Yeah. Uh, Just absolutely covered. That's a lot of blood. It is a lot of blood for that. Um, The bed. When I was saying that, you know, there's no way he was up, like you could see the actual coagulation. Um, The pillow that's really saturated there. It's just soaked in blood. If you look very carefully, do you see those little three white dots right there? Yeah, I was going to ask you, was that just a void of some kind or? It's skull bone. That's actually charge of bone. That's skull, okay. That came out. And then when you look at the pillow on the other side where it just has the drops, Mm-hmm. That's that Gallagher effect that I was talking about. You, you're you're sure. just seeing all that splashing. And then you can see it above the headboard there, too. Yeah. Like, And for those of you that are listening, like even if you don't want to watch the YouTube video, I really go to YouTube and just watch this part of the episode. Uh, there's some if you want to nerd out on blood spatter, this is like a textbook. In fact, I know this case is being used to teach blood spatter all over the country because I've had a lot of experts review it with me mm-hmm. um, above the headboard on the left hand side. Do you see how there's a gap on the wall between yes. the headboard and then where you really it's start clean. to see that blood the only clean part of the wall <laughs> and it's because it just sets just away from the wall a little bit so as that blood is splatter or spattering up there mm-hmm. it's actually hitting the headboard and the then headboard a little void it's like a and, little guard yes and then it hits the wall that's a void you mentioned it earlier mm-hmm. so i just wanted our audience and to see that there are no voids that marissa that match marissa's story of being on the bed herself oh again you're so sexy when you get like wicked smart with this stuff Thank yes you. this is the thing that really really got me is that there's nobody else in the bed if somebody would have been laying on the other side of the bed you would see a void where all those drops are on the pillow on the right there Mm. and there's not um and there's another thing that i've got to talk about here that you probably don't hear on a lot of podcasts when you are working a scene like this that's this bloody and i've had it happen maybe half a dozen times Mm -hmm. you're you got to get up in personal like you're going to do some photographing we're going to there's a lot of string work you do to actually recreate these trajectory lines but you are you're in it and in this particular case it's one of the few times i've had this you'll start to taste iron 
in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like a tinfoil type right, taste. Right, because there's so much iron from the blood in the air. Yes. you mm-hmm. that, The blood is so atomized that you actually will start tasting It reminds me of putting your tongue on a battery. Yeah, very similar. Very similar. And then you kind of get grossed out because you're like, wait. Yeah. This is, person's is that, like, is there blood in my mouth? Is that Dale's blood in my mouth? Uh, it's, fly, it's kind of uh, in the air, so you're like, yeah, uh, um, uh, Anyway, but... You probably don't hear that on a lot of podcasts. When you work no. a really bloody scene, that's something that you just kind of have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned poor men being beaten in their sleep or being yes. exposed in their sleep. And I've got to mm-hmm. tell you, I've had a lot of these cases. You're 100% right. Um, I've had a number of cases like this where men are killed in their sleep. I've also had a lot of like home invasions and really violent homicides or robberies that happen in the middle of the night. So I'm going to, little story time here, I'm going to tell you a little PTSD story I have, especially after seeing those two pictures. Oh, okay. I am terrified that when I go, that's how I'm going to go. Like, I've, I think Wait, I've been exposed to it so much. beating you in the head with a hammer in your sleep? Yeah, that's why I hide the hammers at the house. A lot of times when you're like, I can't find, you never put the hammer up, it's because I'm hiding I it have from my you. own. I put washi tape know, on them. Trust me. It so they're identifiable. The, it scares the <laughs> hell out of me. But yeah, I'm always terrified that someone's either going to break into my house in the middle of the night or like something's going to happen to me in my sleep. So I'm okay. a really light sleeper. I didn't know that. Yeah. I know you're a light sleeper, but I didn't know. About a year after this case, this case happened in January, the following Christmas, uh, I'm working like a madman, running on very few hours of sleep. I wake up one morning about three o'clock and I'm convinced somebody was in my garage. Like I could hear them in my garage and I'm, I'm super tired. Like I'm trying to clean the sleep out. I can't see very well. Um, I grab my gun, like I'm ready, like I'm going to go find somebody in my garage. Right. But the way my garage door opens, like I have to open it with my right hand to get mm-hmm. in, but I shoot with my right hand. So I put my gun in my left hand Okay. and I go to open the door and I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, they're gonna be right uh-huh. here. So I'm gonna do this really quick. So I slowly turn the knob. And then uh-huh. as soon as I feel it unclick, like I pull the door really hard. Uh-huh. And there's this thing called sympathetic reflex. Yes. <laughs> where when you pull really hard with one hand, you accidentally will do it with the other hand. Yes. And whoosh, <gasps> I fired my gun. I had an accidental discharge in my garage. It didn't hit your car, did it? No, thank God. I was I was being safe and I had my gun pointed down when I did it. Okay. Uh, but we had just taken down like all the Christmas stuff. Okay. And there was this nativity scene a nativity that was in the uh-huh. box right okay. outside the garage door and i totally shot the box that the nativity set was in and i was like oh. oh all the lights blew out yeah and you and i weren't together then like this was with my ex-wife okay. but i'm really worried because this is like a family thing like had been mm-hmm. passed down through the generations and i'm like oh shit i just shot the nativity set so i like crack open the there was nobody in the garage by the way i was just that's good that was crazy um i crack open the box really quick and i start digging through it and i get to the bottom of where the bullet went uh-huh baby jesus <gasps> You shot baby Jesus. I shot baby Jesus. Like, and it, it went into like a million was it pieces. In shar- it was okay. It, it was, was gone. Shards. Yeah, it was gone. So what did your ex-wife say? Uh, I just put it in the attic. I just put it in the attic. I got (laughs) a divorce the next year. Yeah. So I don't know. But anyway, she never asked about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think the cat's out of the bag now. Um, sorry. Poor baby Jesus. Yeah. Poor baby Jesus. And if it's a family heirloom, I'm sorry that happened. I don't think we can glue it back together no. either. So let me clue you in on something. Oh, you tell have me. a very healthy fear uh, of this simply because you're smarter. I'm married than, to you. No, you're smarter than most <laughs> oh. men. Um, and I don't know if that's just because you're innately smarter than most men or because you have some life experience in this, but there are a lot of men who, unfortunately, like Dale, never see it coming. They don't realize the dangerous situations that they're often in. Yeah, I'm terrified. I'm not going to lie. Absolutely terrified. And then you do weird shit from time to time where, like, Mm -hmm. you almost play in on this. Uh Uh-huh. Like, there's one morning you woke up and you're like... You're right in front of me, but you're already uh-huh. dressed and you're standing next to the bed and you're like, good morning, dear. Would you like your coffee? But the way you said it, like I was convinced there was drain no, on my coffee. I was coffee. trying to be really nice. I know, but I thought I, there I was said, drain on. I said, do you want your coffee? I poured it out. I didn't drink it. So Marissa. No, I watched you drink <laughs> Marissa at this point, uh, she's released from the hospital. She goes with friends or family or somebody. Okay. Um, 
we know what's up at the crime scene. We know she's lying. Wait, she was at the hospital, but she was talking about being strangled by Dale. So underneath Dale. Yes, underneath Dale. So if she's going to the hospital, I'm assuming that we're looking for signs of strangulation there. What was found? Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, No redness. No petechia. No petechia, no bruising. And petechia, for those of you listening at home, uh, when you are strangled and there's deprivation of oxygen, you have little blood vessels in your eyes that will actually start to pop. And they make these little red, red marks. Yeah, little like little pinpricks. Mm-hmm. And you also get them actually in the inside of your uh, eyelash. Uh-huh. No, and what, you're in really, me. yeah, like in the eyelid, the bottom eyelid. eyelid. But in That's also really word. severe cases, I've actually seen them show up on the face. Yeah, yeah. There is zero evidence, though, that she was strangled, mm-hmm. especially to the to the point of going unconscious like she was reporting. So there's already like, eh, what's up with that? Mm-hmm. Then you take the blood evidence, like, eh, she's completely full of it. Then you listen to what Stanley said in the beginning, like, no, Stanley, you didn't, at least not like this. Mm-hmm. So it's time to talk to Marissa. So we call Marissa and we ask her if she'll come down to the police department. It's a consensual interview. So okay. she's actually brought down to the police department by friends or family, somebody. And we are going to do a very, very planned, strategic interview. And I want to talk about this a little bit uh, for our listeners because I see these on shows all the time and nobody ever really explains like, well, why is it happening like this? Okay. We know she's lying. She doesn't know we know she's lying. And because of that and because of the amount of evidence in this case, we're going to do a very different interview here. We're going to let her lie as long as she wants. We're not going to confront her. We're not going to get all you know mean right from the beginning. Oh, we know you're lying. We're not going to waterboard her. Sure. Like We're going to let her run as long as she wants with that story and lock her into every lying detail she's going to give us. Okay. Um, and then we're going to build some rapport. Because she has so, quite a, a nice little web going now. Oh, it's going to get so much. We haven't even, we haven't even got to the tip of the iceberg on this case. So the detective i assign a detective to do the interview and she's probably one of the best interviewers i've ever seen um she does a phenomenal job with with marissa and she just sits there and she just very willingly takes all these lies like oh my goodness that's terrible but she's bonding she's building a rapport my job as the supervisor is once we get to the point where we feel like okay she's told us everything she's going to tell us i kind of play the bad cop so I come into the room and I tell Marissa, cop, cop. you're lying. I know you're lying. The okay. problem is you're claiming self-defense. And when you claim self-defense, there's no reason to lie. How did she respond to you? She didn't. She just kind of looked like she didn't say anything. And then I told like her. Like this guy's on to me. Yeah. And I told her the evidence at the house does not match what you're telling us. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to make this a self-defense claim, it has to match. So you need to think about what you're saying and change your story because what you're saying isn't going to work. Like, it's just not going to. And then I leave. Like, the bad guy's gone. Well, because she has the rapport with this other detective, she decides to change her story. So hmm. we're going to get to her next story. Okay. Version uh, two. Version two. Well, we're actually kind of on version three because we had version one's the hospital. Version two is where she comes in and continues the hospital a little bit more. Okay. And... What she changed during version two before I confronted her is she just just changes one detail. And that is, Dale was trying to rape her. He wasn't just on top of her. He was trying to rape her when she woke up. And that she started fighting him off. And that's when he started choking her and calling her a bitch. So this explains why Dale is naked. Potentially. Now, when we confront her, that there's no way that that happened. And I didn't tell her. I know that you weren't underneath Dale mm-hmm. because I want to see if she's going to tell the truth. She should fix that piece on her own, not because sure. I confront her. So version three is where everything changes. So version three is we were fighting earlier in the day. We then had sex. Mm-hmm. And I know as Dale's wife, it's my job to just give him sex whenever he wants it. And he takes it. He's very aggressive and rough. Like, she's kind of painting this picture like it was... Violent sex. Yeah, like it was a rape, but it was consensual because she didn't fight back. She's like, I just took it. She just does it because it's her duty. And this happens a lot. And that she she deals with this with Dale all the time. Dale finishes. She gets up from the bed. She goes in the bathroom. She's crying uh, because it's just terrible for her. And she's cleaning herself up in the bathroom. And a few minutes later, she comes back. And Dale is already asleep 
like nothing even happened. Like, like sure. he just had sex He's with. He's so selfish. Yeah, it's like he just had sex with his wife, rolled over, and went to sleep. Like yeah. crazy. Uh-huh. Um, she couldn't take it. She couldn't stand it. She saw the hammer just lying there on the desk, and she grabbed it and with both hands started swinging it with all of her might while he laid there asleep. And is she in her pajamas at this point? Is she, what is she wearing? She has a t-shirt on and like pajama bottoms. And the t-shirt's torn a little bit. There's a tear, but it looks like an old tear to me. It doesn't look, because you know how when you tear a shirt, it looks torn, but then over time, mm-hmm. it like starts to curl. Like that threadbare Yeah, look. yeah. Um, she states, and I've, I've got to find the quote so I don't screw this part up. I just wanted him to feel like I do every time he ever touched me and she was saying that in reference to hitting him with the hammer because the detective asked well how many Mm -hmm. times did you hit him and she's like i don't know a lot i just wanted him to feel like i do every time he touched me and it was that bad huh well i would like to think if you ever get to the point you want to bash my head in with a hammer because of the way you feel well that's the thing is she never really says other than he just uses her for sex when he wants she's just so disgusted by him that every time he touched her apparently it was just a blow to the head yeah and so she and she's painting this picture now that she wasn't in the bed which we already knew dale's just lying there and the only reason she does stop when she stops is because stan hears this and comes in and actually grabs her and takes the hammer away, sets the hammer on the, the desk and like kind of pushes her out, checks on Dale, realizes how bad Dale is, mm-hmm. and then they call 911. So now that we have a better picture of a more convenient truth for her, um, what did the hammer, was there voids on the hammer with like a smaller hand? Was there... Because you said the hammer was covered in blood. Yeah, there is a void on the handle where, but she was holding it with both hands, so it's a pretty big void. Okay. But her fingerprints are on the hammer, like oh, good in the good. blood, I might add. And Dale's fingerprints were never on. I'm sorry, not Stanley's in, fingerprints were never on the hammer. Not that I recall. Okay. Like her fingerprints in the blood on the hammer. She left out one thing though that we all caught during the interview, is earlier when Dale was trying to rape her and strangle her, he yelled out you bitch okay yes but in the second version or the i guess the third version here she doesn't provide that detail so the detective catches this because she's on her game the mm-hmm. detective is and she says well wait did he say anything at any point did he ever say anything and she's like yes as i was beating him he kind of fell out of the bed and then mm-hmm. later she says she moved him because she didn't want to see what she did to him just really screwed up. But as he's sitting there on the She's like, the you just look terrible when you're bleeding. Turn yeah, your can you clean yourself way. up, please? I like, just need you uh, to turn to the right a little bit. Right. So he's sitting on the floor, like with his head up against the nightstand, uh-huh. and he's looking up at her. Okay. The last words Dale Harrell will ever speak. <gasps> you bitch. <laughs> oh my gosh. I believe this is a true statement, 100%. And here's the problem she has. There's three kids in the house. She doesn't know what they've heard or not heard. Mm-hmm. She knows we're going to interview them. She knows we're talking to them. She has to align a story to what the kids could have heard. Yes. And that's why I think she included in her first version that he yelled out, you bitch. And then when she forgot to add it to her last version and we bring it up like, hey, did he say, oh, yes, yes, yes. He yelled out, you bitch. It's the only thing that's been consistent in her story. The only thing that's consistent. And what is, again, going back to my PTSD, the last words Dale Harrell will ever say on this earth is as he's looking at Marissa DeVault and he says, you bitch. Which, by the way, I forgot to get into. This really Mm -hmm. annoys me, and I'm going to dig in on this one. And I'm sure we're going to get some people who want to to argue this point, but I'm not going to hear it. Um, Okay. When I saw the court case and I saw all of the media and, like, all the TV shows, Mm Mm-hmm. They call her Marissa DeVal. Or DeVoe. DeVoe. Like this really... It's this really sexy French Yeah, name. and it's spelled D-E-V-A-U-L-T. When we were working this case, mm-hmm. it was Marissa DeVault. And she stated her name, Marissa DeVault. Yes, when we were interviewing her, it was Marissa DeVault. Okay. I truly believe that she tried to create this persona as she was going through court, because it's got a lot of national attention. Uh-huh. And actually, like, change the pronunciation of her name. And I refuse to buy into it because I know when I was working this case, it was Marissa DeVault. 
and I'm going to stick with the Mercer DeVault. So if anybody's okay. hearing this and they're like, I've seen this episode already, it's DeVoe or DeVow or whatever you want to say. No, it's DeVault. And that's how she also yeah. told you. Her. Yeah, I am not going to, to, to fall So it sounds that. like at some point she manipulated her attorney into telling everybody, the media, and whoever was oh, covering the case. I don't think Marissa is capable of manipulating people. Oh, you don't. Not yet. You're jumping ahead. Here's Marissa's booking photo. Um, so right after that interview, we booked her okay. for... Now, she's being booked for aggravated assault. She looks really young in this photo. Yeah, she's 31. She is young, especially yeah, for us. So. We're old people now. Um, yeah, so that's her booking photo. Okay. Is this her attorney? Hold your thoughts. Oh, I'm not there yet. Okay, sorry. Um, this individual... Uh, okay, so when Marissa is booked for aggravated assault, Dale is still alive. So it's just okay. aggravated assault. Um she is held on a $200,000 bond. Okay. This is her boss, Alan Flores, who oh. posts her $200,000 bond. And to be fair, I have to explain to some of our listeners who may not understand how this works. In Arizona, we have what's called a surety bond. Mm -hmm. And basically, I think it's 20%. So you have to pay 20% in cash, and then you like you put up your house or something. Okay. But that means Alan went to a bails bondsman, probably dropped 40 grand, and then signed like a deed to his house or something over to the bells bond and that Marissa would appear in court. But if you think about dropping 40 grand and right. putting up your house, well, that's really nice for a boss. Regardless, a boss should not be bailing someone out of jail. This sounds like a very intense HR issue to me. Like I know a really good HR executive who would be like, no, this lady can go pound sand. You are not bailing her out. This creates a lot of potential legal issues for us as a business. I know the Why HR. Why would he do that? I know the HR person you're talking about, and she would have been way more aggressive yeah. than that. <laughs> she would have fired him. Yeah, like you idiot. I can't even work even for you. Even though he owns the company, yeah, she you're would have so fired dumb. Him. I can't even work for you. Not only are we getting rid of Marissa, you're going to. For being stupid. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's a really nice boss, or yeah, so okay. it would seem. Marissa is charged with aggravated assault, but she's trying to justify that charge with self-defense due to a long history of domestic violence. So doing okay. so, she has opened the door. The investigation has to get into to every look at her entire life. facet of her life. Yes, mm -hmm. and everything. And trust me, we do. Uh, as an agency, we spent thousands of hours interviewing anyone and everyone we could that knew Marissa. Okay. And we started to get a very different picture. And this is where this case, not that it's already kind of weird, this is where this case gets batshit crazy. Number one, and I want to be very clear, and I'll summarize this later on, at no point ever did we uncover evidence of Del Harrell being in any way violent, aggressive, mean, demeaning, controlling, manipulative. So he didn't show any signs of being some type of abuser with coercive control or manipulation Ever. or nothing or physical violence. No evidence at all. And I've, I've heard some different things that people, mainly the defense, tried to spin out of this, but there's no evidence. Nobody can sit down and say this happened and this shows that Dale Harrell is prone to being somebody who commits domestic violence. It just, it wasn't there. Okay. Um, what was crazy is she was so over the top in her reporting of domestic violence, like, oh, yeah, he gave me a skull fracture, which is interesting when she bashed his head in, she yes. reported herself having a skull fracture. Um, no evidence of her ever having a skull fracture, ever. What resources did you go to to look for this? Like, how did you know where to, well, how did you know what hospital she went to? Did she tell you? Friends, family, and insurance. Insurance is so easy to track these days. Like, you find mm -hmm. out the insurance, and if she went to a hospital, she would have claimed on her insurance. And Okay, so what did Dale do? Did he have health insurance? Yes. Dale actually had a, a, a decent job. He was HVAC, so like air conditioning. And this is Phoenix. Like, it's a big demand to have air conditioning repairmen. Um, and he had been at this company that he was with for a fairly long time. He made about eighty-five, maybe 90000 a year. Oh, that's not bad for Yeah, he, for, yeah, for yeah. 2009, no, he, was, great money. he was doing good. Uh -huh. um, but he had insurance. It still is. Yeah. It still well, is really good money. It's starting to get a little gas. Well, yeah. especially when you start putting on gas and it's health insurance. It's the kids, insurance. actually. So he bore the health insurance. Did I mention insurance. the kids? It's the yes. kids that cost the money. It is. Yeah, I especially, know that. Especially, yeah, anyway. I love you, girls. Um, 
Okay, so we couldn't find anything, though, that supported this domestic violence. But then we started to unveil some other things that are just immediate red flags. And I'm not being judgy on people's choice of profession here, but there's just some facts that we can't avoid. We found out that Marissa had a very long history of being a stripper, Hmm. um, both prior to marrying Dale and during the marriage to Dale. In fact, we found some information that Dale had actually asked her multiple times to stop stripping that she didn't need the money, that he was making plenty of money. Mm -hmm. But as we dug into that kind of part of her life, we found that she was also having a lot of extramarital affairs with some of her clientele. Some of it paid, some of it Mm -hmm. not paid. And we found out very quickly, Marissa's a sex worker on the side. I don't know how much of that Dale knew, if any of it, but, and we'll get into some of these numbers later on, the last two years before Dale's murder, Marissa was making more than Dale. If she wanted to just go out on her own, she was making good money. She could have gone out on her own very Interesting. easily. Yeah. So it starts to paint a very different picture. Than what she's telling anybody or letting on to. And I, I won't mention the, the TV show that I watched. So did she tell you she was a stripper? How did you start oh, finding no, this out? no, no. Just friends and family. Like we, okay. And once you, know, once you start pulling that string, it all comes out. Everybody wants to talk. Everybody wants to talk. And they started their case because it fit the narrative that Marissa and Dale were doing really well, that they were financially stable. They lived in this upscale, affluent community, that they were making good money. They had some horses and diamonds. They had horses and they had so much extra room and space in their house. They had this guy living for free because they didn't need the money. They just found him on the street somewhere. Yeah, and I get so frustrated when I hear these things and I've worked the case and I'm thinking, complete opposite. They are in financial straits, bad. They are upside down. Well, number one, she's told everybody they bought the house, which is another lie. Um, They're renting the house, but they haven't paid the rent in quite some time. In fact, at the time of Dale's incident, they're being sued by the landlord because they're so far behind on On rent. rent. The horses you talked about earlier, they -hmm. actually, my understanding is, belong to the landlord. They were supposed to be taking care of the horses as part of the rent, but then they weren't really taking care of the horses either. Stanley wasn't doing his job. Apparently, yes. Stanley (laughs) dropped the ball on that one. Um, The horses are starving (laughs) out there. Stanley's feeding him like the leftover spaghetti from his plate the night before. He won't even bring in a bale of hay for him. Um, But there's a lot of financial issues going on. Um, The Stanley relationship makes no sense. Like the more we dug into it. It does seem really weird. It is weird. And they both denied any type. We asked. They both denied any type of sexual relationship. But it just Mm. doesn't make sense. Okay. And then we started hearing stories about Alan. And allegedly, Alan's being introduced to friends and family of Marissa because he hangs out a lot. He's over at the house. They've gone on vacations together. With her boss. With her boss. Okay. And when she introduces him to other friends or she's trying to explain the relationship to other friends, she says, well, my stepfather was gay. Alan is his boyfriend. But about a year ago, my stepfather died from stomach cancer. Mm. And Alan is just, he's, he's helping me out because he loved my father. So Hmm. Alan is the former gay lover of her stepfather. And he felt sorry for Marissa, so he employed her. Allegedly. And we'll get back to that here in just a little bit. Um, But yeah, we're starting to get a very different picture of Marissa and all these things that are happening. We've talked a little bit about the financial issues. We start digging a little bit more into Flores. So yeah, that is Alan Flores. Um, Is this him on the stand? Yeah, this was actually his testimony uh, during this case. Um, We find another piece out that's very, very interesting. Marissa's stepfather, who allegedly is gay and died of stomach cancer, Mm -hmm. was loaded, loaded, loaded. Hmm. There's an $8 million trust that is currently in probate that Marissa is set to inherit. Oh. And I'm hoping a handful of people listening are like, Wait, what did you say? That there's a trust in probate? Right. I was just thinking that because when you have a trust, you don't have to worry about probate. Exactly. But Marissa doesn't know this. I was actually thinking that, okay, we're going to have to edit this because he said this wrong. Like, Yeah. Nope. Good girl. See, like I said, you're so wicked sexy when you're yeah. smart. Um, yeah. She's telling everybody that as soon as the trust clears probate, she's going to get the $8 million. And anybody who knows anything about a trust automatically would know, well, the whole point of a trust is you don't go through probate. Right. So. But people are believing this. 
including Alan Flores. So mm. Alan believes that this money is out there as well. Um, so who is Alan? Like we started digging Why into Alan. Was, is Alan hoping like she'll just spread the wealth to him? And so he's just being kind to her or something? Yeah, sure. Okay. We don't know yet, but we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. um, Alan Flores is an accountant. I'm an accountant. I'm an accountant. What do you do for a living? I'm, I'm an, an accountant. accountant. Yes. Um, however, he is a very, very successful accountant. And I won't mm -hmm. name the company because I just don't know if they'll send me a cease and desist as well, but it's one of the largest airplane manufacturers in the world. He is one of their main accountants who does all of their forecasting. It's a big And job. he does real estate? You know, interestingly enough, he doesn't have a real estate company. Hmm. That's weird, huh? Um, but he's an accountant. Uh, he's also a PhD. Interesting. Um, so the real estate is just another thread in the web. Yeah, and it goes back to those outlandish, crazy lies. He's fractured my skull. No evidence. Oh, he's a real estate agent. Nope, never been a real estate agent. Um, it's almost like she lives in this like fairyland that if she says it, it's true. Okay. And that's all you have to worry. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about Alan is he's got his PhD. He's actually did his undergraduate at Yale, and mm -hmm. he got his PhD at the University of London. Wow. Um, he's a smart guy. Yeah. Okay. And a little bit, when he sounds really, really, really dumb, I want you to remember, he's a smart guy, and he's okay. doing very well. He has a lot of money. So let's recap where we're at. We have an aggravated assault that happened on January 14th where Dale is struck with a hammer by Marissa. He is barely hanging on to his life, but he is doing terrible. He has no brain function at all. He's on life support. Marissa has bonded out of jail, thanks to Alan. So she's out in the wild and she is basically waiting for her trust probate issue to settle so she can take $8 million from her dead gay father. Stanley. Who died of stomach cancer. Died of stomach cancer. Stanley doesn't remember anything, so he doesn't know what's going on at all. Okay. And Alan He's Flores. Like, escape. Escape. <laughs> Alan Flores, who is Marissa's dead stepfather's gay lover slash real estate agent, although the real estate business doesn't exist, is still financially helping Marissa. And I said something there at the end that you should maybe be a little interested in. Still financially helping Marissa. Helping Marissa, because he bonded her out. Is he paying her rent or something? We're starting to get information that Alan is giving Marissa money on a regular basis, like mm. lots of money. Like he paid for them to go to Disneyland. He bought Marissa. He paid for who to go to Disneyland? Marissa's him entire. And her and him? Their entire family minus Dale. So Alan and his kids, Marissa and her kids, and Stanley, maybe that's where he got the t-shirt, the Seven Dwarfs yeah, t-shirt. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> or he picked it up at like Walmart on the way to yeah, Disneyland Yeah, you can't, you can't go to Disney World. Oh, it was Disney World too, not was, Disneyland. Disney oh, they World. went to Florida. They went all out. Alan has two timeshare condos at Disney World. And they all hmm. went out there. He paid for everything. He's also paid for a trip for Marissa and Dale to go to Georgia on vacation. So we're starting to see like, okay, what is going on this here? This is like Uncle Alan. It, he, it's not even boss, So Alan. funny you're saying that. The okay. kids would actually refer to him from time to time as Uncle, Uncle Alan. Alan. This is how much he's in their lives. Yes. He is around a lot. In fact, this is it was known that Dale was starting to get jealous of Marissa's relationship with Alan. I'm beginning to think this might be intentional. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, February 9th. So we're 26 days past the assault now. Okay. Uh, everybody's up to speed on where everybody's at. And there is a decision to basically do a do not resuscitate. And there's some different reports on this. I remember when I got the phone call, Dale is going to die on February 9th. The family elected to take him off of life support. And at the same time, he was having a lot of blood clots, which were causing heart attacks and some cardiac arrest mm -hmm. issues. And he died as soon as they took him off life support. So it was just the machine keeping him alive. Kind of. I, I think in the trial, why this gets a little... Like, well, how did it exactly happen? In the trial, he had blood clots that were causing cardiac arrest. So that's the actual cause of death at the time. But it was obviously all resulting from the injury. Sure. I'm going to come back to this in the trial, but it's really interesting. He's a pretty healthy guy. From super before. healthy. He was super healthy. Um, this means we as an agency immediately are going to amend the charge from aggravated assault to first degree first murder. Okay. So Marissa is going to be charged with first degree murder at this point. Uh, but she's out on bond. Remember, Alan bonded her out. Mm-hmm. 
about 12 hours later, so let me make sure everybody's following the timeline, February 9th, sometime in the afternoon, 26 days after the initial assault, Dale is going to die. Roughly 12 hours later, so now we're the next day, February 10th, at 3 a.m. in the morning, we're going to get another 911 call from Marissa. Okay. She's babbling again. Very hard oh. to understand. Um, however, she's been attacked. By again, who? She doesn't know. Unknown who attacked her. She is badly hurt. She can't get up. She's in a field. They dumped her in a field, whoever attacked her. In Gilbert. So it's very, it's actually cold outside because it's February. It's February. And it's been raining too. So it's like super wet. Uh, she has no idea who attacked her. She is having a hard time talking, which later on we find out is because she has a broken jaw. Like she got the shit beat out hmm. of her. Okay. Um, and she can't walk because she has an ankle injury during the, the beating. Um, when she called 911, we get GPS of her location. That's the only way police were able to find her is the GPS from her 911 call. Uh, I've got a picture of her oh. hospital thing here where you can see in her she mouth. The reason her mouth is black like, eyes. Yeah. And the reason she's swollen up like that with her mouth open is her jaw is jacked. Like she, her jaw is completely broken. Okay. Um, she basically explains that she went out, well, her and Stanley were at home watching some movies and she decided to go out for a run. At three in the morning? Well, no, it was much earlier in the evening. What so, time? I don't know, 10-ish. Let's say 10, 10.30. Okay. She went out for a run and you know it's all bullshit, so what does the time matter? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm trying to sort through the bullshit. Okay. <laughs> That's all. Earlier in the evening, uh, she decided to go out for a run. So while she's running... Somebody comes up, or multiple people, she doesn't know, come up behind her and attack her from behind so she doesn't see them. Okay. It, they just beat her over and over. Her ankle mm -hmm. is like hamburger. It looks like somebody took like a giant lead pipe and just repeatedly just bashed in her ankle it. for like 10 minutes. Like it's just- So it's just floppy. It's just a floppy clump of meat. It is, it Gross. is, oh yeah, it's bad. Uh, she can't talk, right? Because her jaw's all screwed up. You can see her black eyes. Like she had, there's no doubt she had the shit beat out of her. Okay. Where they find her in this field. She wasn't like hit by a car. No, anything. no. And she's in the middle of a field. Okay. And because it's raining, there are a set of muddy tire tracks leading oh. up to where she's lying when police mm -hmm. find her. So her story appears legit. She was dumped in a field. Um okay. Law enforcement, Stanley has also called law enforcement to report her missing, and he's really worried. So they make contact. Hey, just so you know, we found Marissa. She was in this field. Somebody beat her up, and Stanley's like, oh, my God, that's mm -hmm. terrible. Wait, who's Marissa? Because <laughs> he doesn't remember anything. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the police officers, though, is like, hmm, Stanley has a little bit of mud on one of his jacket sleeves, and he's got some blood on his pants. So hmm. the officer, being the observant officer, is like, Hey, Stan, what's up with the blood on your pants? And he's like, oh, I chew my fingernails a lot, and then I wipe them on my pants. That's my blood. See, my finger. Yeah, and he explains. He his the, fingers are, like, down to the knuckle nub. <laughs> yeah, apparently. He bites his fingers so much. his fingernails all day. They oh also God. noticed that there was fresh mud on his SUV and that his tire tracks, were, or tread, rather, was very hmm. similar to the tire tracks. This is highly suspicious. Very suspicious. Um, so it's very interesting. So now we're at the point of who attacked Marissa. Was it Dale's family? Dale just died. He has mm -hmm. brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Is this like the family just done with her? Okay. Is it Stanley? It's pretty suspicious. He's got the blood. Yeah. And he doesn't remember conveniently. Right. And we have no idea what Alan's role in this whole thing. So we can't rule Alan out. Do you remember like in the late 80s or early 80s? Uh, there was that stupid sitcom Dallas mm -hmm. who, who shot who JR. Shot yeah, Ewing. yeah. This is kind of like that. Like my parents used to watch that. Like every Wednesday or Thursday, I remember it came yeah, yeah. out. It was a big deal. Like that was genius mm -hmm. on the advertising. So this is our yeah. attempt: who shot or who beat up Marissa? Um, mm. And for <laughs> people to find out, you have to tune in next week. This is a two-parter, people, because we have so much crazy shit that's about to happen in this case. <laughs> We're about to figure out why there's so much crazy stuff. So you have to tune in next week for the rest of the story. Thanks for joining us.